Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Joseph Hansen, who died at the age of 81 in 2004, was a pioneer in the field of noir fiction. His detective in a series of 12 novels and a collection of short stories, Dave Branstetter, was a gay man who was an insurance investigator. Today that might not seem extraordinary, but it was when you consider that the first novel in the series, Fade Out, came out in 1970 from a mainstream publisher, Harper and Row, one year after Stonewall. Prior to that, his works had only been published by small presses. The first three books in the series were reissued in January, and the fourth, The Man Who Everyone Was Afraid Of, will come out on February 8, 2022. Richard Lupoff and I had a chance to interview Joseph Hansen on June 14, 1990, following the publication of the 11th novel, The Boy Who Was Buried This Morning. There would be one more Dave Branstetter book, A Country of Old Men, which was published in 1991. This interview was digitized, remastered, and re-edited on February 4th and 5th, 2022, and hasn't been heard in over 30 years. The first Dave Brandstetter book was 1970, and he is an insurance claims investigator, and he's also gay. Were there any gay detectives at the time? There had been one New York City police detective called Pharaoh Love, who was also black, but he was scarcely a model or human being, inasmuch as uh, he used uh, extortion and held over the head of a murderer. I'm not putting this very well. Anyway, he wasn't a very nice guy. He, and in the end, he murders someone himself. So he didn't exactly make a role model. I didn't set out to write a series, and when I did write Fade Out, it was going to be a one-shot book. The reason I made him a, an insurance investigator a death claims investigator, was that uh, insurance companies are uh, known, or certainly were then, among homosexuals as being the most rabidly anti-homosexual of all the large corporations in America. They don't hire and they don't insure homosexuals, or they didn't then. At least that was the received opinion. And so I thought that would be a kind of joke, and uh, there are other jokes in it, such as the received opinion is that... Uh, Homosexuals go around seducing young boys, so of course the more accurate picture is that young boys go around seducing homosexuals, and uh, I put that in the story too, and a lot of other things, a lot of other preconceptions that people seem to have about homosexuals. I wanted to, you should excuse the expression, lay to rest. Well, the first book, 1970, now that was uh, a year after Stonewall. But I wrote the book in 1967. It took three years to get published. Yes, it did. What's the story behind that? I was publishing what we'll call gay novels with outfits on the coast here like Brandon House and Greenleaf Classics. And when I wrote this, 
none of them uh, would take the book. It just wasn't just wasn't right for them. And several of them said, "No, no, this is uh, you should send this book back east, and you should get a you should get a, an establishment publisher for it." And I laughed, ha ha, gaily laughed. And <laughs> you're kidding. <laughs> you're out of your mind. I can't get an establishment publisher. I've tried all that, but it so happened that. Leo Skur, a gay writer uh, who had been sending me as editor of a little magazine I was editing, uh, sending me poems and stories, and who was a wonderful writer, was kind enough to take some of my California product into his agent in New York and say, here's a good writer, you ought to represent him. And the agent read the novels and gave me a call, and that's what turned my life around. He was able to place Fade Out with Harper and Rowe, and that began a mainstream career for Dave Branstetter. In a piece that I read uh, recently, you credit Joan Kahn for some heroism in that connection. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, I do. I do. Later on, she gave me the boot, but at that time, uh, she said, you're a wonderful writer. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> I was struggling out here in anonymity and obscurity, but... She just went ahead. She didn't make any demur at all uh, or any comment about Dave Branstetter being uh, homosexual. She just went ahead and published the book. That, incidentally, was 1970. And that same publishing season at Harper and Row, the same publisher, saw the uh, Tony Hillerman's first book. So we appeared on the same list together, our first books. I'd like to go back a little bit further in your life. You grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Being gay in Aberdeen, South Dakota? No, I wasn't gay. I was only 10 years old and didn't know anything about <laughs> such things, except I thought the Fisk Tire Boy was cute. That was about it. Everything fell apart in 1933. The Depression came, and my father lost his business, and we lost our home and the car and the furniture and everything else. And, and we made a kind of detour to Minneapolis and got stuck in the deep snow for three years. And then we, with the Jodes, wandered to California. And you were married uh, in the 1940s? Yeah, I got married in 1943. You still married? Yes, to the same person. Did you read detective fiction at that point? I began to read detective fiction in my teens, mostly the serials in the Saturday Evening Post. David Goodis, Agatha Christie, a number of other fairly good mystery writers published in the Post. So that was my first, really my first dip into mystery fiction. What prompted you to, to start writing the gay fiction? Now, you wrote that under the name James Colton, is that correct? Yes, I wrote eight novels and a book of short stories under the name James Colton. What prompted you to start writing them? Well, it was my thing to say. I mean, I knew something about this, and I, it was the thing that I landed on to say. I had tried writing other kinds of things, uh, all kinds of other things, without success. But that subject kept insisting and kept coming into my work, and... I think that it wasn't until the 60s, the so-called sexual revolution and the free speech revolution, uh, that my moment arrived when I could say what I wanted to say in the way I wanted to say it, and that made all the difference. It's never suited me to kind of dodge and hedge and use euphemisms and, and play around with the way things are. I was always interested in trying to put the truth down on paper as best I perceived it anyway talking about 1964 and the publication of a book called Lost, God help us, Lost on Twilight Road, which was not my title. Uh, <laughs> but that was the first one. And a little guy, a little publisher, now he wasn't little, but his outfit was small, up in Fresno, of all places. 
and sold uh, out of first printing of 20,000 copies and printed it again. And it did very well. And there are still people who like that book and talk to me about it from time to time. Okay, you published with uh, with the gay press and you published with the mainstream press. Have you found, other than the size of the organizations, major differences between the two in terms of what they would tell you or how they would respond to you? Well, no, I wasn't really publishing with gay publishers, except I suppose you would call Greenleaf Classics that, although they did other semi-porn stuff. I've never published with uh, Sasha Allison. Well, I have got a book out from Gay Sunshine Press, that's true. He asked me for it, and I was delighted that he did and and it's worked out very nicely the book is is well received and goes along selling copies every year and i'm glad it's out i like that book pretty boy dead it was my first attempt at a mystery and it didn't as a mystery it, it i felt it lacked uh, a little bit in the mystery thing. so i tried again it really was i i wrote that book in 1966 and then in 1967 i, I thought i'm going to do a real much more formulaic mystery this time. And so I tried again, and uh, and that turned out to be fade out. What prompted you to continue the series? Oh, I thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what, what prompted me. No, the book wasn't terribly successful, but it just seemed like a series about a detective always is a good idea, and so I went ahead with it. You mentioned that Joan Kahn was the editor who brought the book into Harper and Row. I'm curious as to what sort of reception or response you got from the rest of the company, especially the marketing department. Well, they put a pretty boy's face with a butterfly motif behind it on the jacket. You know, this is the sort of treatment that you still get from major publishing houses. They can't, uh, at least the art departments, don't seem to be able to think in any terms but cliché terms about homosexuals. I don't know why that is. As to what the marketing department thought or didn't thought, I never learned. I must say they didn't do an awfully good job in selling it. It got a wonderful review in the New Yorker. Stanley Ellen gave it a terrific send-off, but it didn't sell very well. However, it's gone right on selling year after year ever since. It's still selling, and it sells in in uh, France and Germany steadily and Japan. But you mentioned that you, you did leave Harper and Row, and this involved a falling out with Joan Kahn. Was this when you went from there to Holt Reinhardt, or was there someone else in between? I'm just no, trying Holt to Reinhardt trace was, the... Holt Reinhardt was the next uh, publisher, but it took me... I think we ran through 17 publishers before we could get anybody wow. to, to continue the series. Well, first of all, what happened with Joan Kahn? And secondly, Joan Kahn well, didn't well, like the plot of the man everybody was afraid of. She said it was put together with paper clips and band-aids... Later on, Harry Keating wrote a review for the London Times about it saying that the one thing that Hanson really knew how to do was plot. <laughs> I sent her a clipping of that, and she wrote me a tiny note saying, well, I got that one wrong, didn't I? <laughs> oh, well, I, give her credit for that, oh, yeah, for owning up. Very genial. Very genial. About it, very genial. You left Holt Reinhardt and went over to Mysterious Press. Was there mm. any particular incident involved there, or they just offer you more oh, money? Hensler offered me more money. Fair and a lot of promises uh, about promotion and so on. Has he kept him? No. So you went on to Viking? Yes. Viking offered me a lot more money, and they didn't make any promises. But they've kept more promises than Otto Penzler made. <laughs> <laughs> or that Otto Penzler did, I should say. Dave Branstetter has a very interesting home life. 
his first lover of 20 years dies of cancer before the series begins. He has a second lover through a couple of books. They break up. His third lover is a young black newspaper man. He also has an interesting relationship with his stepmother, who I believe is somewhat younger than he is, correct? Yes. His father had nine wives. He always married very young women and then always sort of chucked them off and took on a new young woman. And this was the last? This, this was the bride of record, number nine. <laughs> Had, do you feel that you idealized the relationship between Branstetter and Cecil? I know that not, not in the previous one because they broke up. Idealize it? Cecil decides to marry a young woman who is going to be in great difficulties if somebody doesn't marry her and get her out from under her very difficult mother, a threatening stepfather. So he does this. So there is a crisis that resolves itself at the end of uh, Early Graves. That plot really continues through two books. It's hard to do those domestic things. I put them in in small increments. In the, uh, the twelfth book of the series, which is already written and will be published next year, there is some matter about the difference in the attitude of Cecil, who was in his 20s, and Dave, who was in his 60s, to rock music. And I think I handled that rather rather well, rather truthfully, and certainly rather funnily. And uh, I hope that people see that they don't get along on all levels at all times. There's another aspect which you bring up here, which is that uh, unlike most detectives in fiction, Branstetter ages. Now in 1970, he's in his 40s. Mm -hmm. Now he's in his 60s. Most detectives the paradigm would be Jessica Fletcher of Murder, she wrote, solves a murder every week, but she's still just Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> Whereas Dave Branstetter solves, you know, seven or eight murders over the course of years, and he's the most famous detective in America, or at least famous enough so that people say, oh, I saw you on television. Mm -hmm. You're doing something different there. Well, yeah, he got into, you know, the news magazines and People magazine, and he did get on on a couple of television talk shows, and so on, because some of the cases that he's been involved in have been pretty spectacular, and he just made news, and that would be natural. I also felt that I never do go into that. Once the case is solved, then the book is ended. But following any such adventure as he has, there's all kinds of, you know, there are all kinds of coverage, there's court cases that drag on and on, there's all sorts of litigation, there's all sorts of police action and his lawyer Abe Greenglass is very busy kept very busy keeping him out of all sorts of scrapes that he fully deserves to be in for some of the little things that he does in solving a case he's very much in the middle of things especially in the later books but I never cover any of that in the books so just upon reflection I thought well this guy is going to have been in the news so much that this would naturally follow what about his aging as you age I just think that, that, that it's very much um, easier for me and to be right and true about him if I reflect my own feelings about growing older. Let him have the same feelings. Branstetter has a fairly extensive biography if you read the books carefully and compile clues. For instance, he was a very young intelligence officer in World War II. I believe was in the Army of Occupation in Europe just after the war. Does this reflect any personal experience on your part? No. And he inherited 30% of a large insurance company. That would be very nice to do. You never did that either. No. The question that arises, as it, as it does so often with people who write crime fiction, 
Do you have any background in detection, law enforcement, or, uh, or investigative work that gives you your source material for methodology? No. I guess I just invent it, but I don't invent it, obviously, because if I invented it, I'd get it all wrong. I intuit it, I suppose, or I picked it up from other mystery writers or God knows where it comes from. But I do a little research sometimes when I have to have answers, particularly to specific questions. Very little. It's easy to pick the stuff I need up out of magazines and books without any great delving. Your books concern themselves with social issues. Now, of course, the gay one, Early Graves, which is my favorite Brandstetter book, concerns itself with AIDS. And the latest one concerns itself with extremist groups. Do you feel that the detective novel should reflect social concerns? Yes, I think that's the business of fiction. I think it should be right in the middle of of things that interest people in their daily goings-on. What's in the paper, what's on the television news at 6 o'clock should be in books because people want to know about those things. They want to look inside. And I just feel that there are a lot of things that are pressing on us. I mean, everybody knows how desperately important it is that we do not or do burn the flag. But, I mean, there really are issues, you know. There really are issues. There are people who are sick. There are little kids who aren't getting fed, kids wandering away and uh, getting lost on the streets of the big cities. And there are all sorts of issues like dumping toxic waste in the countryside. I did that in uh, night work. There are so many things to talk about to raise and try to make a living picture in, in, in fiction for, for people. You see, I have more than a hunch that people who read mysteries, a lot of people who read mysteries, don't read anything else, including newspapers. So I believe that, that these things should be waved in front of their faces. In this regard, you mentioned the, the flag-burning issue or non-issue, as the case may be. But I, I, I noticed also some years ago, you received a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Does this, you know, make I you put... a scandalous book does, as a result. Does, <laughs> I hope Jesse Helms never sees it. Exactly. I was going to say, does this put you on he his enemies list? If he ever learned that, that that book had been for the arts. The book is called A Smile in His Lifetime. It was not a mystery novel. But I did get a big whopping $5,000 from the National Endowment for the Arts. In 1974, I had told them about the book and what I was going to do. And I, in due course, in the space covered in a period of five years or so, I did write the novel. And it was published. And it's still in print. And people seem to love it very much. And I'm glad they do. It was an honest book. I don't suppose it's the best structured book that any novelist ever wrote, but I did my best with it to tell what it's like to to try to make some kind of life for yourself if you're a homosexual in our society. We can sit here and, and we can all um, be friends and uh, giggle a little bit about people like Jesse Helms and the various non-issues that are in the headlines today, speaking of the, of the headlines. But do you feel that underlying that is, is a, a really serious issue for our society? Oh, definitely a very dangerous one. People just do not understand free speech and freedom of the press. And it has to be for those of us who at least can flatter ourselves that we do understand it. Uh, it is a constant running battle to educate people as to the absolutism of that concept. 
You cannot shade it, and you can't hedge it, and you can't trim it. Sometimes when I hear some of these lyrics that I hear that are getting a lot of publicity yes. lately, I, I wish I could, but I'm glad I can't, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right. I wish somebody would exhibit some kind of restraint sometimes, and I think we all do. But since they don't, and since there are wonderful people out there, you know, making records to make money and sensationalizing anything they can sensationalize, there's really nothing the rest of us can do but keep our mouths shut because we need about that, because we need to open our mouths on the things that are really of, of vital importance. For a second, I want to talk about early graves because... Insofar as I know, it's the only, there have been other detective novels since then that have been written about AIDS, but that's the, insofar as I know, the first and probably the most powerful one about it. What prompted you to wait until that point to write the novel? I didn't want to deal with it. I was uh, being careful of my own emotions and my own feelings, and they were very strong, and they were, uh, I thought, if I have to consider this matter for the many months it will take me, to write this book, I don't know whether I can stand that or not. And for a long time, I was a real coward. I wrote about other things. People kept saying to me, when are you going to write about AIDS? And I kept saying, yes, yes, I know, I have to. Well, I finally saw that I really must do this. The death of a couple of friends urged me on. And so I found that when I began to buckle down and do the research, read about read everything I could get, every piece of paper I could find, magazines, newspapers, books, uh, anything and everything I could find. I soon got past the threshold of horror, you know, and could objectively take in what I was reading and, and begin, my mind could begin to make something of it, a story, you know, begin to frame some kind of, it, it is, as a matter of fact, it is so rich in story and so rich in emotional potential that there's no way of denying it you know the book really wrote itself so fast that book wrote itself in five months which is very fast for me i thought well you really shouldn't do this as a mystery because that will be trivializing it and then i thought well on the other hand the books of mine that people really go out and buy are the dave branstetter books if i don't do it it'll be dishonest that's the book that will be bought you know if i write a novel about AIDS without Branstetter, it'll sell in the sensational way that my non-crime novels always do sell, you know. So I decided I had to do it that way, and therefore, I mean, I've, I've been criticized for that, and people have said the, the mystery is irrelevant, and indeed perhaps it is, but I tried to make it as, as strong a thing as possible. And what a lot of people missed, and this amused me, it shows you that so seldom I guess I better put this the other way. So often, reviewers don't read to the end of the book because a number of them said this has to do only with male homosexuals. That's all it has to do with. And, of course, that's not true because the central figure, the corpse of the book, is uh, a married man. And we learn, if you read to the end of the book, that he has infected his wife and possibly their children, too, have been infected. But that comes at the very end of the book, and people put it down before they got to that. Well, but also, not only is the wife of the of the main victim uh, a woman, obviously, but also the sister of one of the other characters is a lesbian, who is a character in the That's book. Right. So, I mean, you do address 
many of the different varieties of human relating. It's, oh, it's yes. not just yes. it's not just My a gay novel, not just a, AIDS, whereas the, no. the wife had got it from the husband, and that uh, was a point I was trying to make, but I made it too late, obviously, for mm-hmm. a lot of readers. They didn't get that far. I don't blame reviewers. They have a lot of work to do for very little money. And if they read any part of the book, and don't just read the jacket. Marsha Muller in the book 1001 Midnights uh, says how much she loves Dave Branstetter and your novels. She also says she feels there are too many closet gays populating your books. How do you respond to that? There are too many closet gays populating the world. (laughs) That's how I respond to that. I understand what she means. She's criticizing this as a plot device. And I haven't used it lately. I mean, I, she's right. You, you can only use that so much, and maybe I did overuse it. It's possible. On the other hand, somebody's going to pick up one of your books or two of your books and not going to pick up the others. She's a devoted reader, and I appreciate it so much. And I appreciate all the kind things she's said about me in print over the years, and in that book in, in, in particular. But a lot of readers read only one or two. And the limited number of of plot devices that there are perhaps tempt some of us sometimes when we feel overworked and a little bit lazy to use something that is a little too obvious or something we've used before, or sometimes we forget we've used it before. You mentioned critics as readers, but what about the general reason? Who is your audience? Do you know? Well, it has to be a larger audience than simply a homosexual audience, because I know that it is a fairly large audience. Uh, It's not huge, but uh, it's a substantial audience. Uh, Otherwise, I wouldn't go on being published. And I have been unusually lucky for a writer of detective stories in that almost all of my crime novels and a couple of the others as well continue to be in print, always, you know. And that is a wonderful thing. So the audience continues to grow. And I still, it vexes me in a kind of perverse way, I suppose it shouldn't, when people still come up to me and say, oh, I only discovered your books the other day. You know, well, I'm just glad they did discover them, but I wonder what happened, (laughs) why it took so long. However, that's the way it works. You know, you've got to endure, as uh, our friend Faulkner said. Uh, You mentioned earlier that you and Tony Hillerman were on the same list with your respective first mysteries, which is a wonderful historical convergence. But Hillerman, when he was on this show, in fact, spoke about his audience and said, well, some people read me as a mystery writer, some people read me as a Western regionalist, and so forth. And he's got three or four fairly distinct audiences. If you would expand further on your comments about your readership uh, in terms of their nature, if you know, maybe they're just people out there. There is a gay readership, and I hear from them. There is also uh, uh, an audience who has, uh, so far as I can determine, no connection with gay people, but say to me, you have given me an understanding and an insight into a side of life I knew nothing about. I like that. I like hearing that. Uh, I don't know what else to say. There are mystery aficionados who read the books because they're good mysteries. There are a great many people write to me and say, well, I really, you know, I enjoy the mystery part, okay, but what I really want to know is about Dave's life. I want. I want. That's the part I want to read. It's the ongoing novel of Dave's life that interests people. So uh, that's the best I can do. I don't. People do praise the representation of Los Angeles, and that's nice. So you know, it gives them a feeling of the place. That's as it should be, since I've 
spent most of my life there, and it's a natural background for me. What I love are the people who come up to me and say, oh, I've read all your books. Where do you live? What, what is the future of Max's Restaurant, and why does Dave Branstetter eat so often and so well? I've, I get the munchies whenever I read one of your books. <clears throat> people do say that, yes. There is a whole group of people who uh, would like to read them for the, uh, for the food. What happens to Max Romano's Restaurant? Yes. Aha, uh-huh. you don't know that yet. Branstetter's just bought it. The restaurant goes on with Alex as, as the manager. Is there a real-world prototype? Some French journalists were here a couple of years ago, and they insisted. So finally, I come to uh, a restaurant near my house, Lafitte's. At this point, there's a short loss of dialogue. As the interview resumes, I've just asked Joseph Hansen about the Gothic novels he wrote under the name Rose Brock. At the time Gothics were the rage, writers had to have a woman's name, or so it was thought, you know, kind of reverse sexism. So I chose that one. Uh, I wasn't having a lot of luck with my writing. I was I was doing these books for West Coast publishers, as I say, and I, I hadn't gotten much of any place. So I thought, well, gee, look at all these things on this book tree in the drugstore. So I took six of them home, and I read them in a row, as it were, in a couple of days. And I said, okay, fine. I know I can do better than that, uh, as, <laughs> as all writers say when they do this, you see. And so I went in and and wrote this little book. As a matter of fact, it was right in the middle of writing Fade Out. Mm-hmm. And I'd gotten stuck because I'd never really written a, a completely formula mystery before, and I didn't quite know how to do it. And so I got stuck. And I was in despair. And so I wrote this this uh, gothic in the middle of it. Then I went back, and this problem solved itself, of course, as they do sometimes with the mystery, and I went on and finished that. So they were both written at the same time. I sent it around and sent it around. Nobody would take it. And then, as I told you, this friend of mine got me an agent in New York, and the agent in New York took it around the corner to Avon, who had rejected it with a mimeographed slip once upon a time, and Avon bought it immediately. And that was that. And later on, the same agent called me and said, "Uh, Joe, would you do another Gothic? And I said, no, I I don't want to do any more Gothics. You know that. I told you. He said, well, uh, how are you fixed for money? And I said, you know how I'm fixed for money. I don't have any. (laughs) And uh, he said, well, I can get you 3,000 bucks from so-and-so, I forget who, paperback outfit, for a two-page outline. And I happened to have a seven-page outline. There was a laugh riot, you know. We had so much detail in it. I said, oh, okay, I'll send you an outline. So I did. And I had already begun writing on the thing as fast as I possibly could because I was going to toss it off. Then he called me and said, well, Joe. Uh, I said, yeah, what, bad news on the coffee? He said, no, no. No, as a matter of fact, the news is very good, but uh, I didn't give it to whatever the paperback outfit was. I took it over to Joan Kahn, and she's wild about it, and Harper and Rowe wants to do it, and they're offering you umpity-ump money. And I said, oh, Lord, now I'm going to have to know what I'm writing about, you know. So I got books. It was about the immediate post-war era, the Reconstruction era in the South, about which I knew next to nothing. I was pretty well prepared on the Civil War itself, but Reconstruction and the place of women in Reconstruction? Well, I got piles and heaps of books, and I lay in bed and read and read and read this stuff, you know. And then I could write the book, and I did write the book, and it was published as uh, 
what was that called? Longleaf. It did quite well. It did quite well. I imagine that collectors must really be scurrying around looking for James Colton and Rose Brock books. Uh, every once in a while, somebody brings me a Rose Brock book, but very often people bring me James Colton books, yes. And I understand that some of them are bringing shocking prices, too. Which, of course, does the author no good at all, but it's very good for booksellers. Aren't some of those being reprinted under your own name now, or no? No, just the one, Pretty Boy Dead, which was published as Known Homosexual by James Colton. And 19, <laughs> isn't that a great title? In 1968. But even that one, it took a long time to sell. I wrote it in 66, and I said, gee, this is pretty good. And then I went around trying to sell it, and oh boy, no one was ready yet, you know. Your latest book, The Boy Was Buried This Morning, deals with extremist groups. Did you do research on that? I read a couple of articles, and over the years I've, I've read about the particular individual that is a figure in here. I call him George Hetzel, who has a neo-fascist or American fascist uh, organization, a white supremacist organization down the coast here. So I had read articles about him and his movement and his career. You don't want to reveal who his name is? Well, I don't think I better, know. What was the town in the real town? Though? Well, I don't want to reveal that. I would reveal the name. <laughs> I call it Winter Creek. Dave Branstetter makes some, guess off, some wonderful little zingers in this book. <laughs> I, is this just his age or is this Joseph Hansen? I'm thinking of, uh, for instance, his statement that politics is a profession of liars. That's well, a pretty good that. shot. <laughs> some people just turn rotten early. Another good one. <laughs> Well, I never know anymore whether it's Branstetter or me, but I agree with him on those two things in a way. At least they're rather like any epigram. They're too short and they're, they don't take complications and, and exceptions into mind, but the epigrams shouldn't. That's what makes them fun. There are a couple of other very small points in this book, but things that made me stop for a moment and say, now, wait a minute. Uh, one of them being certain character names such as Ron Lutz and a fellow named Kaminsky. Now, there's a John Lutz and a Stuart Kaminsky mystery writers. Is that mere happenstance? Mere happenstance. Mere happenstance, of course. It's hard to find names when you've written 30 novels. Finding new names is tricky. And in this, I find that there's a guy called Engstrom. And the other day, I was looking for something in an earlier Dave Branstad mystery. And there's an Engstrom in there. <laughs> I'd forgotten. Also in The Boy Who Was buried this morning. Branstetter, I believe it's Branstetter, gets the name and address of a registered uh, vehicle owner from the DMV just by asking for it. Now, I, there's been some controversy about that practice in the news of late. Have you been keeping up with that? Well, he has friends, though. He has friends. He has friends all over the place. He's got friends of the telephone company. He's got friends in various banks. He's got people who reveal to him information that you and I couldn't get. That's how that works. Somebody will go to bat for him, perhaps in the police department. I don't remember how he got that. I've forgotten. But I think it was Samuel, the detective Samuels, yes. who got it for him. Well, indeed, he has uh, what seems to be a very good ongoing relationship with LAPD, yes. uh, as distinguished from the traditional private eye who gets the rubber hose in the police station basement every so often. Yes, but as we know, that no longer prevails. As a matter of fact, an awful lot of private detectives work intimately with police officers all the time. And their offices are generally referred to as cop shops. And there's a, a mutual feeding one way and the other. The police help the detective, the detective helps the police, and uh, it's not the old 
keep off my case, you idiot, you know? And then they end up in jail sometimes, bad stuff. It makes a nice little dramatic confrontation, but it apparently is far less common than it used to be. Uh, you have taught through UC Extension and, and possibly elsewhere, taught fiction writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a, an, a subject of ongoing controversy as to whether it can even be done, whether it's a good idea, or, and so forth. Your experience is in that. It can be done. The person who has the receptivity and the talent to make use of uh, what he's taught is a rare bird. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people with talent who have not yet learned skills, uh, haven't learned disciplines and so forth, and the teacher is never going to be able to, to teach them those things. Uh, there are people who are ripe and ready to learn, and they come into a classroom where you happen to be presiding, and you tell them a few home truths, and suddenly they're a writer. They may have taken, and like Jerry Petovich, had taken many, many writing classes before he happened into mine, you know, in a more or less last frenzy of despair because none of the others had worked for him. And it just so happened that I was able to say things that he needed to hear. And he also was highly receptive. And as you know, Jerry Petovich has wonderful stories to tell and an endless fund of uh, imagination. And after we'd been together in classrooms for about 20 evenings. He was a, a completely finished writer, you know. He, he was a true professional, and uh, he was ready. I think that it makes a difference. Sometimes way down the years, a long time later, someone will come to me and say, oh, I'm publishing my first book, you know, and it'll be 10 years since I had them in a classroom, something like that, you know, and that's very thrilling, too. And I always remember you said thus and such, or I still have my book of notes and I go over it all the time, and this kind of thing. So, yes, I believe that I believe that writing can be taught. Uh, of course it can. There, are, it's a, a great part of it is skills. I remember somebody after attending a, a Wesleyan University where I teach sometimes in the summer for a week at the Wesleyan Writers Conference in Connecticut, you know, wrote me the most wonderful card saying, and I liked the phrase that she used, you opened the hardware store for us on Sunday and showed us how to use all the tools. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, to be able to show people how to use the tools. There are teachers and teachers. I happen to adore teaching, but I don't think people can teach fiction writing who are not writers of fiction themselves, successful writers of fiction. We've been talking with author Joseph Hansen, whose most recent David Branstead mystery is The Boy Who Was Buried This Morning. The next one is, what's the title and when's it coming out? The title is A Country of Old Men, and it will come out in presumably May of 1991. And Dave Branstetter may have retired from the insurance business, but he certainly hasn't retired from detecting, correct? No comment. After the end of the Branstetter series, Joseph Hansen wrote two collections of mystery short stories featuring a rancher detective named Bohannon and two novels with autobiographical overtones, Living Upstairs and Jack of Hearts, the latter published in 1995. Again, the first four books in the Branstetter series have been reissued from Syndicate Press, with each succeeding books coming out through October 2022. You've been listening to an interview with Joseph Hansen, which was recorded on June 14, 1990. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff. 
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 